This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello and welcome to Slate's Game of Thrones podcast, a TV club series that's just for Slate Plus members. I'm June Thomas, and today I'm joined by theatre critic Helen Shaw. Hey, Helen. Hello. And by Slate writer and culture editor Sam Adams. Hey, Sam. Hello. And we are going to discuss Season 7, Episode 4, The Spoils of War. Now, Helen, as we were talking earlier, before we started rolling, you said that your notes included such perceptive observations as holy shit snacks that's right it's a good live uh, record (laughs) and the handwriting also gets quite excited because we did have an amazing conclusion to this episode but i'm going to do that thing that i believe is called uh making people wait there's a word for it that's not coming to my head so i'll just use a seven words instead of one and we're going to talk about the other stuff first Mm. so it begins funnily enough with bron asking for a castle High garden. And, you know, Jamie kind of waves him off and says, Oh, no, you know, the more you have, the more it weighs you down. Or does he say the more you owe, the more it weighs you down? I'm not really sure. Which, which gets very yeah. ironic at the end of this episode. Exactly. That, I think, is what we call foreshadowing. Um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, it turns out later that we learned that Bram was right. Just having a bunch of money really doesn't do you much good in a lot of circumstances. But then, let's see, we had a scene with Cersei and the Iron Banker, Mycroft Holmes. Mm. And again, it felt like that scene was mostly foreshadowing. They were talking about some of the bankers will be sorry to have the Lannister debt repaid because they're loving those interest payments. And then Cersei made such a casual reference to this thing, the Golden Company of Essos. Now, I thought that was just some kind of debt collection agency but as I've been reading uh, on Monday morning, it seems it's a bunch of mercenaries. Oh, yeah. Do either, were yeah. either of you familiar with this crew? Mm-hmm. There's a whole kit of them out in the east, along with the second son, oh, okay. who you might remember. Yes. Dario. Right. Hot, hot Dario. Hot Dario, who is also a, a shapeshifter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it seems like mercenaries might get out there on the field at some point, not huh. too far from now. And based on their time travel abilities, they should probably be there tomorrow. <laughs> Exactly. So then we have a scene with Bronn and Littlefinger. And Littlefinger gives Bronn a knife that's made of Valyrian steel. And Littlefinger tells him that this was the knife that was used in an attempt to kill him, that is Bran. And Bran, you know, gives his now usual affectless, oh, yeah, thanks. Ugh. I, they, I mean, honestly, he is the worst. I mean, he's not going to be my worst, but he's the worst. What do you think of Bran, Sam? I mean, okay, you've got the same vowel in your name, but like... He's obviously annoying people, judging from the recaps and so on. But, I mean, the kid's gone through a lot. And, you know, I don't know what people are expecting. They want him to, you know, do some cartwheels when he meets people and when they deign to talk to him. What's your view on, on Bran Stark? I mean, I like what they're doing with the character. I mean, he's basically doing this massive download of the entire history of the world, uh, both present and past, and uh, having some trouble assimilating it, I guess, and certainly reacting to it. He says in a later conversation with Mira Reed when she's saying goodbye, and he says, well, bye, um, and not like, hey, thank you, and sorry your brother got killed saving my life, and <laughs> anything like that. You know, he says, I remember what it used to be like, what it felt like to be like Bran Stark, but I remember so much more now. So, you know, he drops a little finger's famous chaos as a ladder, mm. 
expression into that conversation, despite the fact that he's never actually been present to to hear him say that. And mm-hmm. that, I guess, among other things, kind of alerts Littlefinger to, you know, other things that Bran might, well, I guess we'll call it remember, yeah. even though it's a different kind of, of memory he's accessing now. Obviously, Littlefinger does not like anyone to know everything that he's been up to, so that seems rather ominous there. And the fact that he's returning this one sort of attempted instrument of assassination puts the idea of another one into play. But, I mean, if I remember, wasn't that dagger kind of a plant to begin with? Wasn't the idea that that was... Because it's kind of ridiculous to send this really, you know, fancy, rare dagger just to cut a tween boy's throat. Like, you really don't need anything quite so elaborate to do it. Just, um, it is a terrible idea, and it is a showy dagger, but that's because it was a Joffrey idea. Um, yeah. So okay, Joffrey, yeah. of course, who thought, I know, he overhears Robert saying, poor Bran, uh-huh. uh, someone should put that boy out of his misery. And Joffrey sends the cutthroat with, with the dagger that he's gotten from his uh, uncle, from huh. his father, from yeah. his father. That, that cutthroat, if they were smart, would have just run off with a dagger and yeah. sold it and yeah. not have been heard from again. <laughs> killed, exactly. killed the uh, king of the dead. Exactly. I mean, and the whole point of Bran saying to Mira, essentially agreeing with Mira when she says you died in that cave. I mean, that is obviously true. You know, certainly his affect died in that cave. But it also kind of makes you made me remember, oh, yeah, John died and is still with us. Bran died in a certain sense and is still with us. And Arya, we we saw her die and yet here she's with us. You know, that those Sansa's really the only Stark kid that's still on her first life, (laughs) even though she's gone through enough to certainly be a different person in a certain sense, she is at least still in her first incarnation. Well, and I think that that's going to be a theme of the people who make it through is that you have to die to live. Mm. Because we've had a lot of people come out of bodies of water after they've essentially died. So I think watching Jamie, sorry to hop to the end, but watching Jamie sink into the Mm. depths, I think is, is our cue that when he comes out, he will be sort of joining these ranks of the reborn, yeah. which seem to be the heroic staff of this show. I mean, it's funny, though, because if you've been dead, you can't cross the wall. So we know that that's a bit of a, a problem, maybe. But yeah, the the drowned god of all the gods seems to be the one who's particularly effective, even <laughs> though there are a lot of very effective gods in this show. I mean, do we buy what's happening with, with Jamie this season? Because the show has been kind of taking him on this, you know, redemptive journey for several seasons from Mm. who he was at the beginning of the show. And now it seems like because they need him to lead Cersei's armies, he's just kind of all of a sudden, you know, not only loyal to her, but fairly enthusiastically committed to the cause. You know, sleeping with him once doesn't really seem to be enough to, to turn that tide. I mean, is this just a matter of like him needing to be in a certain place for the plot or... (laughs) Do we buy what's going on here? Why, Sam, the very thought. I don't know. Gosh, oh, what a cynical you chap you are. Um, I, I mean, I don't know, the, not the very end, but when he charged Danny and Drogon, that did feel like either it's just kind of residual warrior spirit and, you know, he it's just his his nature, uh, you know, and just kind of the, the fog of war and that he he just wanted to have a victory because in a certain sense, clearly he's seen so much carnage, it's kill or be killed. but. I was also surprised by it in a certain sense because he had seemed like he wasn't all that motivated. Like he did have this feeling that he was going through the motions of, you know, doing this campaign. What do you think, Helen? Well, I think that 
one of the things that the show is doing that I think is maybe a bit too subtle is that I think there's actually a suggestion that Cersei isn't a terrible queen. Oh. And during the sex position last scene, when she and Jamie are in bed and it's quite sweet, mm-hmm. and her maid comes by, and you notice that her maid has had her hair cut to look right. like Cersei's. Right. And you think, this woman is a role model. She is paying her debts. Okay, she blew up the sept, which yeah. everybody has a day. Um, <laughs> but honestly, the sparrow was terrible. Yeah. So she, I think that Ooh. one of the things that Jamie seems to be doing, as you say, is that, you know, stability is better than war. And I think he is trying to save lives. And I think he thinks Cersei is actually a good queen. And he, I don't think he's the only person in Westeros who thinks so. Which is quite interesting. They've had a couple of scenes this season where we talk about competence mm-hmm. as, a, as a leader. Mm-hmm. And Jon Snow, good Lord, when she turns to him and says, what's your advice? And everyone in my household shouted, <laughs> you know, don't listen to <laughs> this idiot, you know. Whereas Cersei, again, like I think there is this suggestion that she might not be a bad queen. She might be a bad person, uh-huh. but she might not be a bad queen. That's interesting because just to jump a little bit, when Missandei has a... Mm. Uh, a conversation with, I guess, Jon Snow and Davos and talks about why she and the other people from Essos are following Danny. Mm. And, you know, she says it's not because she's the daughter of some king they never knew. Mm. It's because of what she's done. You know, she's earned their their votes. She's a president in a sense rather than but she a was monarch. A terrible. She was rubbish in the <laughs> East. I mean, we know that yeah. she wrecked those cities. And that's something I think that people who read the books, maybe you just spend more time with that, Uh which is that she actually hasn't got the first clue about Mm. what to do when she's conquered. And I think we're supposed to understand that she's learning some of those skills. But we, I I don't know, I don't know that we're really seeing that. Well, yeah, and I mean, this is kind of a real world problem. I mean, there are kind of, you know, war presidents and peacetime presidents. Mm. Yeah. It's hard enough to be good at one, mm-hmm. um, and it's extremely rare uh, to be good at, at both of them. And there are, I mean, I almost see, you know, the, the John and Danny split as sort of a wartime president versus a, a peacetime president. I mean, mm-hmm. they're obviously both, you know, need to be military commanders at, at this point in time. But, yeah, I mean, John's advice has not often been very good. And, and it, you know, the show keeps paying lip service or acting as if it's taking seriously this sort of, I don't know, conflict between more violent and, and compulsory forms of rule and, and more, you know, winning the people's hearts. Mm-hmm. Um, but winning the people's hearts never works. Yeah. Um, Lady Olena had that speech at the end of, of last week's episode where she mm-hmm. says, you know, there's never been a more loved queen of Westeros than, than my daughter, mm-hmm. Marjorie, and that, that did not safer. And then mm-hmm. and Jamie responded to that saying, you know, when Cersei's given everybody peace, you know, is anybody really going to care how she got it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, no matter what people say, the way every conflict on the show actually plays out and who ends up winning, you know, might kind of always makes right on the yeah. show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Helen, you've blown my mind with the uh, coiffure theory of, uh, <laughs> of Game of Thrones, but I'm quite persuaded. Okay, let's get to what kind of could have been a very touching reunion, and I thought once again was underplayed. I mean, clearly intentionally, but I wanted a little more. I wanted, but didn't expect a little more sort of emotion in the Arya Sansa reunion. The thing, instead of having this heartwarming moment, I was mostly interested in the fact that Arya said to Sansa about her useless guards, 
you need to get better guards. Like she said, you need, not we need. So mm-hmm. that felt like there's doesn't seem like it's a permanent placement for Arya. And then, of course, we see that Sansa gets a glimpse at how Arya's changed. And, you know, and Arya knows that Sansa's gone through stuff, even though, unlike Bran, she doesn't kind of throw it in her face and remind her of it. But there's an acknowledgement that they both have been through a lot and have changed and are still sisters and still have their stark loyalty, but they're not the same people. Mm. What did you make of uh, that reunion, Helen? What did you think? Well, as a little sister, (laughs) I do understand the need to needle as a way to show love. The thing that is built pretty deep into the sort of the deep structure of this show, which is George R. R. Martin reading a lot of medieval history and Scottish history, is that he actually has a sort of real world understanding of what family relationships were like, Mm. which are not particularly modern, which are not based in love and sentiment mm. uh, in the way that we think of them today. And and I think that we're actually kind of seeing that clockwork tick out is that, you know, we're already used to thinking of the marriages as sort of of convenience mm-hmm. and uh, structural, you know, regimental Alliances, change. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so here we're seeing people who are kin and who are sort of sworn to each other in the way that the banners are sworn to the different houses. But we might not be looking at the same kind of level of sentiment Mm-hmm. That we would normally expect. And then when Sansa says, you know, when John sees you, it's just going to be a, a blowout. And unfortunately, they've just raised the Kit Harrington acting yeah. requirement <laughs> for, uh, to perhaps an insuperable bar, yeah. but, uh, we can hope. Ah, what's your view, uh, Sam? I mean, I think it, and the way that reunion is staged, they kind of, you know, wrong foot us once again. And I think, kind of taunt us with the idea that this is going to be another reunion like at the Red Wedding that Anya, mm. sorry, that Arya doesn't quite make. Yeah, you know, that yeah, she's yeah. going to kind of get there and realize that she no longer belongs in Winterfell and take off. Um, and instead they meet, you know, down in the crypt, which is a mm. strange place for a touching sisterly reunion. And the way that scene is blocked, I mean, they're quite far away from each other and really mm. are you know, sizing each other up before they come together. And it is a reminder, you know, how much these characters have been through, how long they've been away from each other. And in a way that, you know, of course, they're sisters and they're Starks and they'll always have that bond. But at this moment, they don't really know each other. Yeah. And they're not quite sure how to approach one another. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, that was a, you know, a big point that the show was making. But Sansa's response to seeing what, a badass swordswoman yeah. Arya is taking on Brienne with Brienne's huge sword with her little needle and dagger and just being a killer, mm. which we know. But Sansa seeing it was that seemed like that was the big emotional impact mm. of like, shit, look at her. Well, yeah. so, so you know how in the show everybody always gets what they want. Like it's like an advertisement for the secret or something. So <laughs> so Sansa says, I want to be a lady. Yeah. She's a lady. Yeah. You know, Arya says, I want to be a killer. When she's a kid, she's a killer. She wants to have adventures. And there's terrible cost. Yeah. And yeah. to me, what that moment on the balcony was, was Sansa who... I mean, think about what's happened to her at Winterfell. Like, you know, there's a room just along there where she was pretty badly attacked. And she's looking down and I think she's seeing, you know, if only I had learned to defend myself. Uh, Uh, I thought that was what was painful about that moment. Interesting. Okay, well, let's jump ahead a little bit to Dragon's Home. 
where John apparently is the first person to walk into the cave with a with a light and notices, you know, these amazing cave paintings amid the dragon glass. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they tell the entire story of uh, creation and, and the, the White Walkers. Apparently, the early art was all black and white, except for apparently there was a source of blue for the White Walkers eyes. It was a very... I don't know, not a very subtle scene, <laughs> let's say. Fight the real enemy was the ultimate takeaway there. But it was also seen, and it's funny because I did not see this myself. I didn't feel that there was emotional or, God forbid, sexual tension between the two of them. But uh, so Davos has that great line, you know, when John says that Danny's heart is good. And he says, yeah, I, I saw, you know, I could see that you were really staring at her heart. You know, so other people see their connection. Did you guys feel it? Danny and John, Danny plus John equals big heart. I mean, I felt that we were supposed to feel it. Yeah, yeah I exactly. guess. I mean, obviously, yeah. the the way the that you know, seeing this again, kind of you know, blocked and shot, and the camera yeah. kind of you know frames them to emphasize the empty space on you know the 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 air between them, and and it's hard to know because it, it's you know, in a way, something that I'm not particularly hung up on the whole um, interesting within the right. world of the show because you know. Uh, nephew sleeping with his aunt is so far from the worst thing that has happened mm, yeah. in the world of Game of Thrones that I find it, you know, difficult to get too worked up about it. Mm. <laughs> but it's not something that we're really sort of thoroughly emotionally behind. So it, I don't know that I necessarily want to feel the erotic electricity crackling right. between them. Um, <laughs> but I even over and above that, yeah, I don't, I don't feel a lot of, uh, I guess, chemistry would be the, the technical term. Mm. And, and also, Danny seems so obsessed with getting John to bend the knee. Dirty. Yeah, it is. And, you know, that's all very well. I get, you know, it's a Game of Thrones, but she's so unsubtle about it. And she's so kind of tin-eared, you know, that she'll talk about pride. He shouldn't let his pride get in the way. But the only reason she's begging him or forcing him or blackmailing him into bending the knee is is her own pride, right? Well, and a lot of people on Twitter mm. last night were talking about the sort of the parallel between what he says to Mance Raider beyond the wall. He says almost the same thing. He says, you've got to come, the wildlings have got to come south. Yeah. And the survival of your people is more important than pride. Yeah. But, you know, this, this situation is kind of apples and oranges, I think think and i it does feel again i know i'm pretty harsh on danny as a ruler but she just does not seem to understand that she isn't helping his people it's her people if her attitude is that these are her people then the the yeah, greatest yeah. threat is not the red keep but right she does not really have the common touch no no girlfriend doesn't <laughs> but the the thing i really loved about that was the you know substandard john hughes <laughs> sort of murmuring, touching, using the elbow steer as your big <laughs> seductive move, was that this sort of terrible, terrible mechanism of trying to use Davos to gin up that <laughs> sexual tension, right. who is, bless him, the best way to kill sexual tension. <laughs> when he comes bounding down the wall and he's like, Miss Sunday, you're great. You're so cute and beautiful. It's just, he is just the biggest wet blanket. I love him. He is. Somehow there's something that's still... It's not about innocence, but it's like he's, mm. as much as he understands all of this manipulation and all the stuff that goes into it, he himself sees it, but doesn't really indulge in it. I mean, I guess he's too lowly and he's still, uh, as he always reminds us, he's just a, a man from, what, Flea Bottom. 
And uh, there's something about him that's very likable, but he's not much of an aphrodisiac. Well, and he does say, King John, no, that sounds wrong. <laughs> You're like, okay, I guess that's how the show feels. King uh, in the North. Yeah. He also, we also had that weird interaction where Missandei, who knows everything and speaks every language, had apparently never heard of the concept of illegitimacy. <laughs> yeah, oh, bastardy. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, Missandei, you could you know the word in like 17 languages, but you don't know what it means. That was a little tiresome. Mm, mm, yeah. But we did get her saying that, you know, essentially Danny's their president. Okay, then Theon Greyjoy shows up in a boat. Danny's not there. Where is she? Okay, let's get to the scene. That was a good battle scene, right? Mm. Mm, wonderful it just was, wonderful beautiful too yeah what beautiful colors yeah beautiful arrangement of action it all looked like a remington painting i thought it was yeah. amazing yeah and we also saw i maybe for the first time just how beautiful the dragons have become in drogon's coloring you know he just looked fantastic you know as well as being scary he was a beautiful animal is i shouldn't talk about him in the past but i liked how that scene started with Bronn and Jamie are just shooting the shit with Dickon and then, wait, be quiet, I'm hearing something. And they realize that the Dothraki horde is descending. And mm. then a minute later, they realize, look up mm. in the skies, there's something coming too. Sorry, could you repeat that last part? Because I was just snickering to myself after <laughs> you said the word Dickon. I didn't get anything. <laughs> well, you know, the show without George R.R. R. Martin's dialogue has gotten for me, a little on the nose. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that it's very efficient, but yes, it's very on the nose. So you see Dickon, he says, oh, it was my first battle. It was really <laughs> worse than I thought. And the two guys are like, yeah, you're such an idiot. This is what war is like. And then cut to like six seconds later, Jamie looking at men on fire. Yeah. And he's not battle hardened. He doesn't, he's not ready for this kind of massacre. And he's not ready for pain on this scale, yeah. you know, and it's interesting to see the people who think that they know what war is, and then instantaneously, war goes beyond what their kind of can is. Yeah. Yeah, I think for me, the underlying theme of these last couple of battles, and I went back and rewatched um, some of the other battles throughout the show's history for a, a print piece that I'm working on about the show, but it's, you know, you really get the sense from, from these last couple of weeks that none of these people who are currently commanding battles, and that excludes Jon Snow, but you know, between Jaime and, and Tyrion and, and Daenerys, and I mean, none of them really understand the nature of the enemy that they're going to face, let alone the enemies they're, they're currently facing. Mm. You know, they're getting not just strategically outmaneuvered, but even the, even the Unsullied are, are kind of, you know, lining up in their little squadrons to attack Casterly Rock, and then actually taking it through a kind of sneak attack from the rear, and the uh, Lannister army are, you know, lined up in their nice little phalanx, um, and then the Dothraki come, and, and perhaps, you know, had they not had the addition of a dragon, that would have been an effective stand against a cavalry charge, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, then Danny comes and just burns a hole right through their front lines, mm. and then it's all over at that point, and it, and it seems like there's this moment where... Dickon and Jamie are kind of trying to one-up each other about their battle experience, and then Bronn jumps in with, well, you know, men shit themselves when they die, or do they not teach you that at fancy lad school? Mm -hmm. um, and it's like he who's, you know, been fighting for a living literally since he was five years old, he's the only one who really understands the nature of the threat that's coming. The Dothraki horde is just kind of a small taste of what the White Walkers are going to bring down on them, which is this endless army of the dead that you... Mm -hmm 
really can't fight with conventional mm-hmm. means. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, they brought a knife to a gunfight at this point, and they, they need to realize what they're going to be facing. Although, you know, there's something about that, something you just said, Sam, that makes me suddenly to come around to Jon Snow's position of all things, because, well, first of all, I just want to say, yes, Bronn has all this experience and he knows that men shit themselves. But you know what? When there's a dragon in the mix, they do not because they don't have time. They just get incinerated. And so in a way, that just shows us how all of the rules, no matter how much experience you have, even if you're a grown ass man who's been fighting and killing since you were five, Mm. you've not seen this before. Mm. And also maybe that he has a sense, having seen White Walkers, that, you know what? We can kill this dragon right now. Or maybe we shouldn't because this is one of the few things that can kill them or that can fight them. And the, all this thing that John's been talking about, oh, you know, fight, their, fight the real battle, save it, don't, you know, don't fight amongst yourselves. Maybe he might have had some sort of glimmer of that. I mean, we didn't get much sense of it when he's pointing a ballista right at its heart, but he's a very wise man of strategy when it comes to fighting. Oh, but, but he's going to die. I yeah, mean, we just yeah, know yeah. you can't have Give him a castle who, already. We like yeah. him so much. We like yeah. him so much. Yeah. I, you got to harden your heart yeah. to, uh, to Bronze future. I think he's not going to wind up with lollies. I did go back and rewatch that last couple of shots, like very closely in the yeah. slow motion. And you can definitely see Bronze kind of breaststroking away underwater mm-hmm. as Jamie is sinking down. So he's mm-hmm. not dead yet, at least. I right. know oh, we've got eight episodes for him to, for him to really build up our love for him. And then, crush it again Helen is there anything else you want to say about the battle one of the lovely images in it is Jamie watching people burn into dust and then the dust uh, then the ash blowing away yeah and which obviously for uh, our eyes is an image from Hiroshima yeah and I since my theme today is what's wrong with Danny (laughs) um you know tactics make the soldier and raining down hellfire, even though it is a completely military target, it does kind of rebound on her morally. And then the second thing is him watching the the burning and then watching him sort of rally himself to joust, even though he's sort of half a soldier. We do know that he's the Kingslayer. Yeah. And we know one hopes, I hope at least, that this means that he has a sort of a role to play in the in the battle beyond. Because he's the he is the person who when he sees a king going wrong and burning his subjects, he yeah. takes him out. He, he has a thing for killing mad kings. Uh, all right. This is the time where we shift to talking about the worst person in Westeros. You're the worst shit in the Seven Kingdoms. There's plenty worse than me. I'm going to go first because I already know that my candidate <laughs> is a little bit lame. Um <laughs> I am going to nominate Mars, the god of war, because it just killed me this week seeing the possibility that Bronn might kill Drogon. It was, yes, you're absolutely right, Helen. It was absolutely a military target. Yes, it's like nuclear war in that it's so destructive. It's it's hard to respond to. But the way that Danny rather unconvincingly was kind of steering Drogon and calling Dracarys and, and the way that, you know, apparently the Dothraki horde could avoid a lot of the fire and that, you know, Jamie and Bronn, despite standing just, you know, centimeters away from men who'd been incinerated were just fine. It's a weird kind of weapon, but yes, it's definitely a weapon that's, you know, a weapon of mass destruction and mass killing. But I just couldn't bear the thought of one of these magical creatures. There's only three in the world just being 
destroyed like that on a field in the middle of nowhere on a loot train. Mm. It just was too much. So justified, but I couldn't bear it. So I'm, I'm coming down on war. Okay, let's have some proper answers. Uh, Sam, who was your worst person in Westeros this week? Uh, I'm going to agree with the piece we ran last night and say that I, I think Bran Stark is the worst person in Westeros this week. He, he did not do, you know, the worst things. I mean, you know, Danny burned a few hundred people alive and, and everything, but just the, the sheer kind of creepiness of his affect, the way he deals with his goodbye with Mira and those sort of, you know, pretentious college freshman diffidence with which he kind of dismisses all these petty human emotions just really makes me kind of want to give him a smack. <laughs> Undoubtedly. Helen, who's your worst person in Westeros? So I, I want to agree with Bran, but I think he's the worst haircut in Westeros. Oh. Um, I think the worst person in Westeros yesterday was Littlefinger mm. because he is going to run out of stark teenagers that he can go up to and say, in a creepy sort of close talking way, you know, you should trust me because I really wanted to sleep with your ma. <laughs> no, no, hear me out. I really, really wanted to sleep with your ma. And poor Arya, you know that she's yeah. in for it. He's going to corner her in some stable and say, it's your ma I was after. <laughs> and so I think for me, Littlefinger is the is the one I would I would hit delete on. I wish that Arya, I know, like, I know she's a just a cold-hearted killer and we shouldn't <laughs> celebrate that, but I just wish she could just kind of lose control a little bit when he does so. Yeah. He's not on our list, but he should be. Yeah. And yeah, let's just make that, yeah. let's bring an end to that because yeah. he's a, a perennial candidate for worst person in Westeros because he's just so damned annoying. Mm. All right. I think that's the end of our discussion of the spoils of war. Thank you so much, Helen. It was so great to have you. Thank you so much. And thank you, Sam. We'll be back next week to talk about episode five. You guys, we're more than halfway through this sort of semi-half demi season. So we'll be back next week to talk about it. For Slate, I'm June Thomas. Thanks so much for being a member of Slate Plus and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.